you got plans for 2019, right? Everyone's got plans for 2019. Your plans um, might include losing eight pounds. Um, maybe you're planning to preach real good all year. I'm kind of giving myself away, right? These are my plans. Maybe you want to lead better than you've ever led before. Maybe you want to really be nice. If, like me, niceness is not your default setting, that's always something to work on. Maybe you've got a book or two to publish this year. Maybe you really want to just win D10. Maybe you want to go sailing or chase your wife around more than you ever have. And let me tell you, I've chased her around some in 22 years. All right, we all got plans. You got plans, I got plans, right? You got plans for 2019? We've all got plans, but the key is to make our plans but follow his lead. Okay, this is one of those sermons where you could leave now. You'd be like, all right, good, thanks, Todd, good sermon. Because <laughs> that's the big idea. Make your plans, but follow his lead, like Abraham's servant did in Genesis chapter 24. Before I read you the chapter, and good news, it's the longest chapter in Genesis, 67 verses, so get comfortable, it's going to take me a while. But before I do that, I want to give you a little recap. Here's what you've missed so far in Genesis. Or if you've been here for three years, here's the ground we've already covered. In chapter 1, God makes everything good, including us, the humans. Chapter 2, God rests. He takes a break. He institutes Shabbat, the Sabbath, the seventh day. And he gives Adam his first command regarding the two trees. He also, by the way, makes Eve. And she's so beautiful that the minute Adam sees her, he bursts into song. Also worth noting is that he makes them both naked and says, fill the earth and subdue it. God is your friend. In chapter 3, Adam and Eve sin and they fall and they're cursed and they're banished. In chapter 4, Cain murders his brother Abel. Humanity begins to spread and it is very clear that they are bent. Chapter 5 contains the genealogy from Adam to Noah and the most fun part of that chapter is finding out that Enoch was God's friend. God liked him so much that he didn't even let him die. He took him to himself. Chapter 6, we see that humanity has become so evil that God has decided to blot us out, and it sounds very familiar. Chapter 7 is the great story of Noah's Ark. Chapter 8 sees the flood over, and God setting up a new covenant between himself and Noah and his family. In chapter 9, the details of the covenant between God and Noah are outlined. In chapter 10, the genealogy of the nations descended from Noah is outlined, and it's pretty boring, except it leads to a very interesting chapter, chapter 11, which contains the story of the Tower of Babel, where once again, the big issue is the big issue. Equality with God is something that the humans are grasping for. It's the sin of Eden all over again, and we also get in chapter 11, Shem's genealogy. You're like, I'm tired of genealogies already. Why does this matter? Well, it matters because in chapter 12, we meet Abram, who is a descendant of Shem. God appears to him, calls him to be his person, and gives him a command to go to a land that God will show him. Abram goes, and then there's this whole episode where they flee to Egypt during a famine, and Abram, because he's a bit of a coward, pretends that his beautiful wife Sarai is not his wife, so she ends up getting taken into Pharaoh's harem, and all kinds of shenanigans take place. That 
Egypt thing. In chapter 13, Abram and Lot, his nephew, separate because there's just too much prosperity. They have been so blessed by God that the, there's no room in the land to contain them, so they decide to separate. And the key teachable from this chapter is that Abraham takes the high road by taking the low road. He says to Lot, you choose first and I'll take the leftovers. And wouldn't you know it, Lot chooses the valley of the kings next to Sodom and Gomorrah, which turns out to not be such a good idea after all. In chapter 14, Lot gets caught up in a war between the kings of the north and the kings of the south. He gets kidnapped and taken north with the victorious kings of the north. And Abraham, his uncle, rushes to rescue him, traveling all the way north to Tel Dan, which still stands today in the northern part of Israel. And he rescues his nephew. In fact, the gate that Abraham would have gone through in Tel Dan is there to this day. And I may or may not have illegally touched it with my own hands last time I was filming there. In chapter 14, he also meets Melchizedek on his way back from conquering the kings of the north. He travels into the valley of Jehoshaphat, which is still there to this day, on the never-eat-shredded wheat, the east side, if you're looking at the map of the city of Jerusalem and the king of Jerusalem. Melchizedek comes out and kind of brokers a peace between Abram and the kings of the south who have come to block his way and demand their share of the treasure. And instead, Abram gives 10%. Tithing is introduced to Melchizedek. In chapter 15, God cuts his actual covenant with Abraham in a very scary dream. In chapter 16, uh, Baron Sarai, the wife of Abram, who has been promised a son, gets impatient and gives her maidservant Hagar as a wife to her husband, and Ishmael is conceived and born, and this leads to great conflict in the household, and Abram is disconnected and tired of his wives bickering to the point that he just lets them kind of do their own thing. In China, it's ugly what happens. In chapter 17, the covenant is revisited. Abram gets his name changed to Abraham, Avraham. And Isaac, the son of promise, is promised. And Abraham is now 99 years old. It's been about 27 years since he first met the Lord. In chapter 18, some angels visit him. And uh, they again reaffirm the fact that his wife's going to have a son now a year from now. Sarai is listening from the tent. She overhears us and she laughs about it because she doesn't believe that it could be true. From this we get the name Yitzchak, Isaac, which means to laugh. Abraham also in this chapter negotiates with the Lord that he might not destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. In chapter 19, God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah but rescues Lot from Sodom because of his servant Abraham. And this chapter 19 ends with one of the most bleak moments in all of the Old Testament as Lot's surviving daughters lay with him one after the other after getting him drunk to preserve their father's line. They had thought that literally the world had come to an end. So great was the cataclysm that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. That's one's worth listening to. We discover that the sin of Sodom is not exactly what we would have thought. In chapter 20, Abraham runs into Abimelech, a king of the south, and once again pulls the coward move and pretends that his wife Sarah is his sister. And uh, Abimelech is about to take her as a wife. This woman must have been incredibly good looking. By now she's more than 100 years old. But God appears to Abimelech in a dream, says, don't do it, I'm about to kill you. And in the midst of all this craziness, God is still faithful. He still shows himself faithful to Abraham and blesses him mightily. In chapter 21, Isaac is born. And of course, Hagar and Ishmael, as a result, are banished by Sarah. And this is my least favorite chapter in all of the Old Testament, the scene where Hagar and Ishmael are kind of 
working their way out into the wilderness, banished from Abraham's house, and they begin to die of thirst. And she's so upset by this that she puts her son away from her. She can't bear to watch him die. Yet God steps in to save them. It's beautiful. In chapter 22, God tests Abraham in the matter of Isaac. He tells Abraham to go and offer the son of promise as a sacrifice to the Lord his God, which is just completely crazy. But Abraham obeys the Lord, and just as he's about to do it, God offers a ram, knowing now that his servant Abraham is truly obedient, even to the point of death, and uh, delivers Isaac, the son of promise. In chapter 23, Sarah dies, and Abraham stakes his claim to the cave in the field of Machpelah. And why does this matter? This matters because Abraham is putting down roots. He's burying his wife in the land of promise because God promised that this land would be his land, and so he's putting his money where his mouth is. And that brings us to chapter 24. I haven't even read it to you yet. Oh my goodness. Yes, church is going to go 10 minutes long today. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you. And you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you'll be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand into the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when the women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord... God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink and who shall say, drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking... Behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milchah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms wearing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milchah, whom she bore to Nahor. She, and she added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Lavan. Lavan ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man. 
And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, Speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. He's repeating the whole story here. This is very Jewish. It's because this was an oral tradition before it was a written tradition. So they would typically tell you the two most important things twice so that you wouldn't miss it. I said to my master, perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said, the Lord, before whom I have walked, will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall then take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who will say to me, drink, and I will draw for your camels also, let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Listen to the differences here in the second account from the first account that's coming up here in a moment. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebecca came out with her water jar on her shoulder. And she went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will give your camels also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, whose daughter are you? Notice the difference? In the previous account, he takes out the ring and the bracelets first, and then asks her. Now that he's telling the story, he already knows who she is. He changes it a little bit. Then I took out, where am I? Verse, help me. 47. Then I asked her, whose daughter are you? She said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, who Milchah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Lavan and Bethuel answered and said, this thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Be'er Lechai Ro'i in the south and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that fine-looking man? Sorry, I added that. Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. 
Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife. And he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So funny as a preacher that I get conflicted that I'm going to read you the whole chapter. 67 verses, the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. And then I think to myself, I'm a Bible preacher. What else should I do besides read in the Bible? Right? Genesis chapter 4. It's beautiful. It's powerful. This is what life can look like when you make your plans but follow his lead. Some notes on how to read the Old Testament. Here's how I read the Old Testament, right? It wasn't written primarily with us in mind. It was written for God's ancient people, the Hebrews. And so there's quite a bit of distance between its original applicability and its applicability to us today. So we cannot read it like ancient Jews. We need to read it like modern, mostly Gentiles living in Guelph in 2019. So some of the ways in which I interact with the Old Testament might be helpful to you. I come to the Old Testament looking for wisdom for living. That's why I think you should take notes. Because you will find wisdom for living as we work our way through these ancient texts. I come to the Old Testament looking for signposts that point me to Jesus. I believe that the Old Testament is ultimately revealing the Christ to us. And so every time I come to a chapter in the Old Testament, I'm looking for signposts. You should do the same. Look for signs pointing us to Jesus. I'm looking for lessons and warnings about remembering God. Because I know from long study that the big idea of all the Old Testament is this. Remember me. It's the point of the Old Testament. God wants you to remember him. So when I study the Old Testament, as you absorb the Old Testament, as I preach through it with you for 13 weeks, I want you to look for warnings and lessons about remembering God, and I want you to look for patterns of godliness. You'll see patterns here, and usually the points that I emphasize are points that I know are patterns in the Old Testament. These are not singular events. This hasn't happened one time. These are events that echo again and again in the story of God's faithfulness to his difficult people. So watch for those patterns of Godliness. Today in the Old Testament, in chapter 24 of Genesis, we see a picture of a planner who follows God's lead. This is a picture of the kind of person I would like to be. It's a picture of the kind of life that I would like to have, and maybe you too. Look at verse 1. And Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed him in all things. Make your plans knowing that all things end. Abraham is old. He's approaching the end of his life here. He's almost about to die. This is true for all of us. Make your plans knowing that all things come to an end and keeping in mind that it's ultimately only God's blessing that counts. Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord God had blessed him in all things. The point of this is that you're not in charge. Okay, you can't stop yourself from aging, right? Darn it. And you can't bless yourself. Bless you. It doesn't work. Okay, this is evidence that you are not in charge. So, surrender. To whom? To the God of verse 3. Who's the God of verse 3? He's the God of heaven and the God of the earth. He's the God of what you can't see. He's the God of heaven. And he's the God of what you can see. The earth, heaven and earth, the seen and the unseen. Make your plans, but follow his lead. Some things, like your plans, you can see. Some things, like his lead, you can't. Make your plans, follow his lead. You are following the God of heaven can't see it, and of earth, you can't. Go to my country, Abraham says to his servant, and my kindred, and take a wife for my son Isaac. In verse 5, the servant responds, but um, perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me. Note here that Abraham has a plan, and his servant has doubts. Maybe you can relate. Plans and doubts. Plans and doubts. Planning and uncertainty. This is the human condition. You see it? This is the human condition. How do you deal with it? Well, you do a few things. One, you can appeal to personal history. 
Abraham does this, referring to the God of heaven and earth who has been faithful to him. You can appeal to your personal history with God and find and share confidence for the future as a result. So do that. If you have any history at all with God, you find yourself in a moment of difficulty, look back upon his past faithfulness and find there faith and hope for your difficult future. You can also have faith while remaining down to earth and you can keep the main thing the main thing. We see this outlined in verses 7 and 8. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife from my, for my son from there. So there's his declaration of faith. Here's the down-to-earth part in verse 8. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you'll be free from this oath of mine. Now here's the missional part. Only you must not take my son back there. So he says, look, God's come through for me before. He will come through again. Engrave that on your soul this year. Right? You need that. He's been faithful before. He'll be faithful again. Engrave that on your soul in 2019. And let's have some faith, but let's be reasonable about it. Right? Abraham's not a fanatic. Right? He's saying, go and get her. God will help you. He'll, in fact, send his angel before you. But if she won't come, you're free of this oath. No one's asking you to become a religious fanatic or a zealot here. Okay? Abraham is not. He's like, okay, God's going to help, but if she won't come, you're free. What might non-fanatical faithfulness look like for you in 2019? Think on that. Meditate on it. Apply it to your life as this year unfolds. And then keep the main thing in mind. What's the main thing for Abraham? Very clear. Only do not take my son back there. So the main thing for Abraham, he wants to stay in the land that God had promised to him. Don't miss this. That's the main thing for him. That's why he bought the cave at Machpelah to bury his wife there. That's why now he's saying, do not take my son back there because God told me to come here and told me that this son I'm looking for you to get a wife for is going to be my heir in this land that God has given to me and to our descendants forever. So no matter what, don't take him back. Okay, that's the main thing for Abraham. What's the main thing for us? Well, as a church, it's pretty simple. The main thing for us is to love God, to love people. Why? So that more and more people encounter Jesus. Why? So that they taste and see so that he is good. Why? So that they are inspired to begin following him in the real world. Why? So that the love of God and love of people can spread from them into their sphere of influence. Why? So that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In the words of Habakkuk 2.14. That's what we're about. That's why we exist. That's the main thing. That's the mission. That's it. We got a mission to complete, so let's get going like the servant does in verses 9 and 10. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose, hear it, and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. It sounds so simple. Makes the vow, gets his stuff, Goes to the city of Mesopotamia, goes to Mesopotamia, the region between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, which eventually became Babylon, to the city of Nahor. It sounds so simple, except it isn't. Because the distance from where they were to where he was going was 837 kilometers on foot through a rock desert. Okay, I grew up in Israel. I have hiked the northern rock deserts between Israel and Syria, and they are a nasty, nasty piece of land. Okay, so this is not some easy trip that this servant is about to undertake. Remember that when you come to your moments of difficulty this year. 
Just remember, 837 clicks on foot through the rocks. And that'll give you hope, right? You understand why, right? Because like, all right, this is difficult, but it's part of the biblical pattern. 837 clicks by myself through rocks. Bring it. Okay, don't expect the journey to be easy or quick. What do you need to do this year? Keeping this in mind. So that you'll be better equipped for the journey God has called you to. One thing you can do is make a plan, but then make sure you ask for help. This is exactly what happens in verses 11 through 14. He makes a plan. He shows up where? At the well outside town. Why? Because that's where you get water from. At what time? Dusk. Why? Because that's when the young women of the town come out to the well to draw water. For what? To get them through the night. He's got a plan. He knows what he's doing. But then he asks for help. He says, Oh Lord, let the young woman who comes both offer me a drink and then let her offer to water my camels also. He knows his business, right? He's going to the right place at the right time to get the right result. But he knows that he also needs divine intervention. Verse 14, by this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Have a plan and ask for divine intervention. Have a plan and ask for divine intervention. And notice how active he is here. He's made a vow to Abraham, remember that? Sticks his hand under his thigh. So they did it back in the day, right, right under there, near the groin. Okay, stick his hand under the thigh. He made the vow. He uh, made the journey, 837 clicks, don't forget it. He puts himself in a good position once he arrives, parks himself right outside the city by the well where the ladies are going to come. And then he gives God a very specific request. Don't forget that. The parable of the persistent widow rocked my world this past summer. It's contained in Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Let me read it to you here. And Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, hear this, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith in the earth? And I got to tell you, friends, I read that parable and it cut me to the heart because I realized that I was nowhere near widow enough in my approach to God. It's like a rhema word. If you come from the charismatic or Pentecostal movement, you know it's like when God takes his Bible and speaks to you personally. I was like, that's for me. And so what I did right there back in July of this past year is I made a list of 10 things to petition the Lord for. And every day from July till this day and moving forward, I have prayed for those 10 things three times a day, every day without fail for six months. And on December 23rd, the first on that list of 10 became a yes and amen thing. And I got to tell you, when you pray every day, three times a day for six months for 10 things, some of them are about my life, some of them are about your life, some of them are about our life as a church. When you pray about those things that persistently and one of them happens, you're like, ooh, this is a very good sign. But if you never pray like that, you'll never experience follow through like that. So maybe you need to be a bit more like the persistent widow this year. So you come before the Lord humbly, say, Lord, 
I'm coming before you like the persistent widow because you have commanded us to come before you that way. So I'm going to be bold and I'm going to pray audacious, impossible prayers and I'm going to look forward to you coming through. Maybe that's a word for you today. Pray like the persistent widow. Rock my world. Be specific and annoying. Isn't that cool? When was the last time a preacher told you that? Maybe never. You're welcome. Be specific and annoying. Don't just have faith. Okay, be annoying about your faith and watch what happens. What happens in verses 15 through 27? Exactly what the servant prayed. Before he even finishes speaking, Rebecca shows up. She ends up offering him water and to water his camels also. Now, the very important point here that is missed on us as a modern audience. I'll get to it in just a second. There's some patterns here that I want you to note. Okay, some patterns in this part of the story that I want you to note. Verse 15, before he had even finished speaking, I love this. That's like meant to come across as like miraculous. Before he even finished speaking, boom, she showed up. Let us raise our faith expectation this year. Okay? That may not be for all of us, but it's for some of us. Let's raise our expectation level this year. Verse 17, the servant ran to meet her. Notice that he runs to meet his faith. He runs, he doesn't just sit there waiting. He runs to meet her. Let's act on our faith this year. Maybe that's for you, right? Let's, let's act on our faith this year. Verse 19, she said, I will draw water for your camels also. Let us not forget as Western sophisticates that this is meant to be a wowzers moment in the text. The original audience, when they would have heard this, because it's an oral telling, right? So they would have heard him arduously tell the story the first time, and they're waiting in anticipation for the payoff, and then he tells the story the second time, and boom, it happens, and they're like, wow, God is real. Whereas we sophisticated modern Westerners think, I don't know, they wrote it after the fact, maybe they just manufactured it, we should probably do some textual criticism. Now, I'm all for textual criticism, and I'm all for historical accuracy, but in the midst of that, I am also all for faithfulness. This year, let us make faithfulness our default setting rather than skepticism. Maybe that's for you today. I want to be faithful. I don't want to be a skeptic. In verse 21, look what happens. The man what? In our version here, he gazed at her in silence and here the English translation falls down because in the Hebrew it says the man tumulted himself in silence to see whether the Lord had prospered his way or not. He tumulted himself in silence. This is very encouraging because if you're sitting here listening to me preach and you're like, I'm enjoying this, but I'm not with you yet. I'm not with you yet. I don't believe like you believe yet. I'm not there yet. If you're still not 100% sure, welcome to church. Don't beat yourself up about it because you match the biblical pattern. Because even Abraham's servant here, who'd experienced all this goodness from God, still has doubt to the point that he tumults himself in this moment of fulfillment to see if God really is going to come through. Okay, if you're struggling with doubt, you're a perfect fit. Welcome to God's church. You belong here. But when God comes through, like he does in verse 24 when she says, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcha, whom she bore to Nahor. Okay? When God comes through, then like in verse 26, you bow your head and worship the Lord. Let worship be your response this year. Could you improve in that area? Let worship be your 
default setting this year and keep moving forward because God meets you along the way. He leads you while you are going. Verse 27, part B, as for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Hear me, church. If experiencing the faithfulness of God is the goal, then the journey is the destination. Okay, remember that you're a sailboat. A sailboat can't be steered unless it's moving. I'm a sailor. You get in a sailboat, grab the wheel, and turn it before the boat's moving, nothing happens. Like, why are we not moving? I mean, because you're not moving. It's called steerage way. The boat needs to get some way on, literally get some way on, get moving, and only then can you steer it. And importantly, with a sailboat analogy, it has to be moving fast enough so that the water moving over the keel and rudder creates lift like a wing, so that all of a sudden you have control. The captain cannot steer a ship that is not moving. If you feel like God is absent, it may be because you are stationary. So get moving this year and remember your mission. You're welcome, by the way. That's a very, very good point. You're like, I got my money's worth today. Yes, you did. Me too. You're a sailboat. Don't forget it. God's not absent. You're stationary. That'll preach good, right? You can put that on a t-shirt. Ooh, get moving and remember your mission. I'm almost done. Verse 33, I will not eat until I have said what I came to say. Okay, remember your mission. Don't forget it. He's not even going to eat until he says what he came to say. And remember that you are not responsible for the outcome. You are only responsible to be faithful. This is outlined in verses 49 through 50. The servant says, now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Lavan and Bethuel answered and said, This thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go. So he says to them, Are you going to show steadfast love to my master or not? He's done everything he promised his master he would do, and the outcome is still in doubt. Okay? Here's the point. You are not responsible for the outcome. You are responsible to be faithful. Right? Get it? The outcome is not your responsibility. You are responsible only to be faithful. So get to work. This thing has come from the Lord. Verse 54b. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me on my way to my master. First thing, he wakes up, what's on his mind? His mission. Same thing for you. You wake up tomorrow morning, what's on your mind? Your mission. What God has called you to do, how you use that to be his redemptive force in the world, how you leverage the resources and the talent that come from that to build his church together with your fellow saints so that God gets much glory, you get much joy, so that through your transformed lives, much good is done to the city of Guelph and the surrounding region. You get up tomorrow, you start the new year with a bang. He arose first thing and said, send me home to my master. Be about your business and don't let anything get in the way. Maybe, you know, she could stay with us another 10 days. Do not let anything, verse 56, delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Refuse to let anything stop you this year while keeping your mission in mind, verse 60. May you become thousands of 10,000s and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. This here is a 
picture into the missio dei, the mission of God himself. As Rebecca's siblings bless her, they say what to her? They say, fill the earth and subdue it. Isn't that what they're saying? They're saying, may you become thousands of ten thousands. They're saying what God said to our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. That is your mission, to fill the earth with millions and millions of God's friends. And what else is your mission? To keep your eyes focused on the son of the woman who would do what? Possess the gates of his enemies. And you should be hearing, bing bong, bing bong, bing bong, bing bong, bing bong, Genesis 3 in your mind's ear, where when he's cursing the serpent, God says to him what? He says, you're going to bite the heel of the chosen son, but then that chosen son is going to lift his heel and he's going to crush your head. Pointing us all the way from Genesis through to the victory that we will one day taste and see as Jesus returns to make all things right because he has won the final victory at the cross and in his resurrection. This is the mission that we are to keep in mind. The original mission of Genesis. And worship team, you can join me because I am literally almost done. You need to keep your eyes on Jesus. That's part of the mission. Fill the earth and keep your eyes on Jesus. Who did what? Who triumphed over the power of Satan, sin, death, and hell once for all as he hung on the cross and God the Father punished him in your place for your sin, and he died but didn't stay dead, arising again the third day in victory, triumphing over the power of Satan, sin, death, and hell forever before ascending to his Father's right hand, sitting down in victory to begin interceding for you, meaning he's your cheering section, a place from which he'll come again in glory to do what? To inaugurate his kingdom which will have no end, a kingdom in which you have a place. And that should make you very happy, and that should make you live today like tomorrow's promise is already true, so that you should spend the rest of 2019 and beyond as the Lord tarries doing two things. Filling the earth with countless millions who will do the same, keep their eyes fixed on Jesus. Right? And while you do this, waiting for him to make all things new, you can do a couple of last things. Like Isaac did in verse 63, you can worship the Lord. He did not go out to meditate. He went out in the Hebrew to worship. This is my kind of man. He finishes his day worshiping, by, worshiping before the Lord, and he does it all by himself. Doesn't need anybody. He loves the Lord so much, he goes outside and he closes the day in worship. As you wait for Jesus to return to make all things new, worship the Lord like Isaac does in verse 63. And when the Lord provides you with the desire of your heart, note I said when, not if, you need to respond in love like Isaac does in verse 67 and receive the comfort that only God can provide as you make your plans but follow his lead.